But <clears throat> this, to me, has been a very uh, beneficial time that we have been looking at the person of Jesus, who is Jesus, and uh, what is it to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And uh, this morning, I'm going to emphasize the new creation, uh, moving from death to life. And, um, you know, Paul mentioned that in the book of Acts, the 11th chapter, that the followers of Jesus, the disciples, were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. And uh, history shows that it wasn't the name they put upon themselves. It was the name that the people in the world put upon them because they were living the Christ life. And uh, Jesus really, this is, this is really such an important understanding we have of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, Jesus is an historical figure. There's no question about that. Uh, there's more evidence that Jesus lived than uh, uh, Caesar Augustus lived or Alexander the Great lived, just from the standpoint of the manuscripts that have been uncovered. Um, but Jesus is far more than an historical figure. Jesus' plan was that he continued to live through his church, through us, through the new creation. Um, as a matter of fact, we quote a verse often, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if we read that in the context... The seventh verse says, remember those who have the rule over you and consider their lifestyle. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our lifestyle is to be the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, nobody does that perfectly. There's a thing called growing, but it begins just like the world began with a creation. We didn't come from swamp gas. My ancestors are not toads. We came from a creator. There is a creation, and there is a new creation. So I want to talk to you about three words today. Generation, degeneration, and regeneration. Generation, not from the standpoint of, uh, you know, a 40-year period of time, but generation from the standpoint like a generator. God is the generator, generator. And God generated the earth. He generated everything. He brought everything about. And if you can find that story in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 1 is a general picture. Genesis 2 is specific that he created man from the dust of the earth. And after he had put that body together, do you know why our bodies go back to dust? Because we came from dust. We're just bags of dirt, glorified at the moment. But I tell you, when, when the spirit and soul move out, I mean, we rot quickly. And we all stink. I mean, we stink anyway. <laughs> if, we don't, if we don't shower or whatever. In other words, th there is something about us that the only, the only thing that brought life was the fact that God took Adam and he breathed life into his nostrils. 
So that was generation. And then in the third chapter, we see degeneration. That Satan came in the form of a serpent, and he tempted Eve, and uh, she listened to him. She went by the senses, and God had told Adam that you can eat of every tree in the garden. I don't know how many trees there were, but how many of you know God is prolific? Just look at nature. It is amazing the number of species of plants and animals, and not all of them even today have been named. And so what we have to understand is, is that God, in being very prolific, he said, Adam, you can eat everything except you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what did Adam do? <laughs> Adam and Eve partook of the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, the day that you do that, you're going to die. He didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They became aware uh, of sin. They became aware of their nakedness. And so God put a barrier, put them out of the garden and put a barrier there to guard against it, lest they come and eat of the tree of life and live forever in this condition called sin. And in that we see God's heart of redemption. God doesn't want humans to live forever in a condition called sin. But there's only one escape from that. And so God's plan from the beginning, God didn't think it up. He said, well, what can I do here? God knows the ending from the beginning. And so God brought a way. Paul mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there is a door. Jesus reveals himself as the door in the 10th chapter of John. There is a doorway out of this condition called sin. Everybody lives forever. We live forever, forever either separated from God or we live forever in the presence of God. We live forever separated from God in torment and anguish or we live forever in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy. And so Adam sinned and degeneration took place. And, and you see throughout the Old Testament the prophets prophesying about one coming. Uh, actually, the moment that uh, Eve sinned, God prophesied to, to, to Satan. He said, uh, you're going to crawl on your belly. And said, you may bruise the heel of the one that's coming, but he is going to smash your head. And that's what happened when Jesus came. The, the, the prophecies, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament of the first coming of Jesus. And they were fulfilled. And then in Christ, we have regeneration. Jesus speaks of it in uh, John chapter 3. Uh, twice in John chapter 3, he speaks. I'm not used to using notes. Sit up here. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, speaking to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who had come to him by night, I believe he was hungry. I think there was something happening in Nicodemus' heart. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That little word see, sometimes that word see literally means see with the eye, but so often it means comprehend, understand, or discern. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he said, you're not going to understand, you're not going to comprehend or discern the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And in that, we have something we need to understand. I remember before I was saved in December of 1971, uh, I was raised in church. I knew a lot of Bible verses. I'd gone through the motion. See, we have to, we have to understand something. Moralism is not the gospel. The gospel is not living a better life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the fact that all of us were lost and undone, hopeless, without God, undeserving of hell forever, and yet God in his mercy came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, took upon himself the, the punishment of our sin and the sin itself. He took that upon himself and he gave us life eternal in exchange for it, even though we did not deserve it. And so before December of 1971, even though I was going through the motions, I knew Bible verses, I was going to church. I was going to church up until high school and then I started drifting away. But I was lost. I was lost and my understanding was darkened. I saw things in a way that were twisted and perverse. And God came into my perversity. God came into my twistedness out of his love, not, not with condemnation. But he came into this weekend where I was away with my friends. I was a single young salesman and and we were just doing all the things that we shouldn't be doing. And in the midst of all that, I was smoking dope. I was drinking. I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't get high. And there was this nagging question that came to my heart. Why are you doing this? It wasn't nagging in the sense of condemning. It was compassionate. You're destroying yourself. Why are you doing this? And it just kept coming the weekend. And about midnight, a little after midnight... On the 12th of December, it was a warm night in Tennessee, and I was looking at the stars out on this redwood deck at this beautiful cabin up in the mountains on a lake. And I was looking at the stars. I always loved to look at the stars. And just like that, I had a revelation that the one who did that loved me, and he loved me in the midst of my stupidity. And it captured me like you cannot believe. And the very next night, I, I was staying with my folks in Tennessee. I was living in Cincinnati at the time. I was staying with my folks. And shortly after midnight, I'd been reading some things some friends had given me that had become Christians. I got out of my bed. I got on my knees. And I just simply said this. I said, Lord, my life is an absolute mess. My friends tell me that you can do something with my life. I don't know if you can or not, but if you can, I give it to you. And I go to bed, and I wake up the next morning, and I was doing some work for a former employer in that city, and I was getting ready to go to work, and Mom had fixed me a wonderful breakfast like she always did. 
And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow, I feel so different. What is going on? I feel so different. And it didn't dawn on me. I didn't remember the prayer I'd prayed. So anyway, I eat, I go to the work, and, and my former boss had a secretary. She was a nagger. She was a Methodist nagger. She nagged, and she nagged, and she nagged. So I walked in, and so I walk in the office, and she said, did you go to church yesterday, Rodney? About like that. And when she asked that question, these words came out of me. No, but something a whole lot better happened. And it dawned on me. And I broke. What had happened? Regeneration. I'd been born anew. I'd been born again. I'd been born from above. The life of God had come into me. And I remember the days around that time, I mean, I saw clouds differently. I saw trees differently. It was amazing. What happened? I was seeing, comprehending, discerning, understanding a new kingdom called the kingdom of God. So regeneration had taken place. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Otherwise, we don't understand the things of God. Now, a lot of times, you know, we Christians are not the most humble people. Have you ever noticed that? Humility, humility is not something that we wear well. And so sometimes we come across as, you know, we really know it all because, you know, we're Christians, we've been born again or whatever. But the reality is this. We have an ability from God to see things differently. And the only people that can see things differently are people that have really been impregnated with the life of God. But just because we've been impregnated with the life of God does not mean we will live in that. There has to be a yieldedness that we have to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, also speaks of regeneration. Having been born again, this is the New King James Version, having been born again, having been born again, Peter is writing to the believers that he's writing to, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. So he talks about the Word of God as seed. Well, we know the Word of God in one sense as the Bible. But the Word of God is the person. As a matter of fact, if you understand the Trinity, and I don't think anybody totally comprehends the Trinity, it's God the Word, excuse me, God the Father, God the Word, who became the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Word of God really is a person, Jesus. And this book is not an end in itself. There's a means to an end. The, the reason for this book is to make the living Word, Jesus Christ, more real and enhance our relationship with Him. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the Word of God. The Amplified Bible 
puts it this way, you have been regenerated, born again, that is, reborn from above, not from a mortal origin, seed, or sperm, but from one that is immortal by the ever-living and lasting Word of God. And then the message puts it this way, your new life is not like your old life. Well, that's an understatement. Your new life is not like your old life. Your old birth came from a mortal sperm. Your new birth comes from God's living Word. Just think, a life conceived by God himself. So our new life has been conceived by God through the seed of the Word. Born again through the seed of the Word. At the new birth, Christ the Word in seed form is planted in us. When we're born again, Christ the living Word in seed form is planted in us. It's His seed. From conception, from conception, when the father's sperm and the mother's egg unite, all of the DNA for that human to be who it is is present in that cell. The instant of conception. The moment I was a one cell, everything I am to be physically, I got my daddy's flat feet. Uh, it's interesting. My son, our son, looks like a Billings. Our daughter looks like a Lloyd. Well, how did that happen? Billings, uh, she was, I, I, I married Nita Billings, by the way. So he looks like a Billings, she looks like a Lloyd. Now, how does that happen? DNA. DNA. And so, some, from the very conception, so... On the other side of that, we have to understand that in the new birth, everything I am to be spiritually is in me in seed form in the person of Christ. See, what is Christ-likeness? What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is a single, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is a single fruit. It's called love. And there are eight manifestations of love. It's like a think of an orange. Oranges have slices. The fruit of the Spirit, if you go to Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then there's eight manifestations of love. Joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control. Those are all manifestations of love. And so that's all Christ-likeness. I don't have faithfulness in me. I don't have love in me from the standpoint of Rodney generates it, but the regeneration, the, the new birth, that's in me. That's why I don't need to pray for more patience. I just need to live out of the patience that's in me. In seed form, everything I am to be is already there. I'm glad you're excited about that. <laughs> so Horace, my dad's name is Horace. My mother's name was Inez. Horace's seed and Inez's egg 
produced three of us. And boy, were we different. <laughs> but DNA happened. From, from, the, from the moment we were conceived, we, we were who we were going to be physically. Well, the moment we're conceived in Christ, we're who we're going to be spiritually, but we have to grow. Paul writes in Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I travail again in birth until Christ is formed in you. At the new birth, we're conceived. Our DNA is set, spiritually speaking. But Christ has to be formed in us. That's called maturity. That's, that's called becoming Christ-like. That has to be formed. Christ formed in us is spiritual formation. The new birth is being born again. In other words, we have everything in us from a standpoint of spiritual DNA, but Christ formed in us a spiritual formation. At the new birth, the seed of Christ makes us spiritually alive. I was alive, born again. Uh, not everybody that gets, Nita was born again at a very early age, and hers was less dramatic. She, she wasn't out boozing <laughs> at, at nine years old. Okay, in other words, we, we have a tendency to think that we gave up this and we gave up this to come to Jesus. I heard a man many years ago said, nobody gave up anything. What you gave up was a paper bag full of slop and the bottom of it was about to fall out. <laughs> you don't give up anything to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he cleans you up. All he is, all Christ is to be in and through us is present in us in seed through the seed of Christ when we're born again. Spiritual formation is allowing Christ to become in us who he is and to live his life through us. So much of what I say from in the next two hours, no, I'm kidding, is, <laughs> is about understanding whose life it is anyway. What space am I occupying and for whom? That's so important that we understand. Ezekiel, all the way back in Ezekiel, he prophesied about this. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm not going to read the passage. I'm just going to enumerate the things that uh, Ezekiel said in these two verses. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. He said, I'm going to give you a new heart. Now, he was speaking this specifically to the children of Israel. He was talking about when God regathers the children of Israel, but it was talking about the new birth. And the new birth is the same for Jew or Gentile because there's neither Jew nor Gentile. You understand that in Christ. We all belong to Christ and we're heirs according to the promise. God says through Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a new heart, not a blood pump, but a new heart, our inner part. A new spirit I will put within you. Uh, Peter refers to the spirit as the inner person of the heart. Okay, so he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I will remove your hard, insensitive heart. Once again, not the blood pump. And I'll replace it with a soft, sensitive one. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. 
So at the new birth, we get a new heart, inner being, a new spirit, the hidden man of the heart, and I'm going to give you my spirit. So we got our spirit and we got God's spirit. And that is so important that we understand because from the time we're born again, and please hear this, from the time we're born again, there is a part of you, there is a part of me that is always in agreement with God. Always. There's a part in my inner being. Uh, Chris called it, my, I know it in my knower the other night. That's my language. I understand. I was raised on that. I know it in my knower. In other words, there's something about all of us when we're in tune to that inner being and the spirit within us that agrees with everything God is and everything that God says. We don't have to live in muddy water. We don't always see it, but there's a way to pray and to get the mind of God. Constantly in agreement with God. And the, the cloud and the muck of the soul. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. That's why we need to get our minds renewed to the things of God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, specifically talks about the new creation. I'm going to read every word of these verses. I've left some words out, not because they're not pertinent, <coughs> but they're not pertinent to this message today. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ... I got out Janie's old song last night and listened to it, Minda. He used to work for Janie. Uh, if any man be in Christ, then he has become a new creation. I'd sing it for you, but that wouldn't serve you well. <laughs> the next thing says, the old has passed away. What happens when somebody, what do we, what do we say? What do we say when somebody says, he passed away? He passed away. Well, if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. He's dead. He's dead. He passed away. Or she passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation. If Nita and I are having marital problems and we're separated, and that's not going to happen, I talked to her. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, what happens? We need a reconciliation. What, what does that mean? Well, there was a time we were conciliatory. We could get along, but something happened. There was a break. So there has to be a reconciliatory, reconciliation. God and humans could get along great when he created Adam, but Adam and Eve became rebel rebellious. And so there needed to be a reconciliation. So God took it upon himself to reconcile us back to himself. He didn't sit down and do negotiation and say, well, I'll do this if you'll do this. No, he didn't do that. He took it upon himself. God in Christ reconciled us to himself. I have been reconciled to God. I was an enemy of God. And God reconciled me to himself. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
We have a tendency to count. You know, if you mess up in my life, no matter matter how good you've been, there's a twisted part of me, if I'm not careful, I will hold that one thing against you and negate all the good. And, And that's perverse. We had everything against God. And God had everything against us from the standpoint of our behavior. And so what did he do? He says, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm going to take that upon my son. He willfully, Jesus willfully came. He wasn't forced. And so Paul says in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If he's done the work, then be reconciled to God. Yield to it. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, I think I'm reading the English Standard Version here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, but God made Jesus to be sin. Not that he became a sinner, he didn't. But he became the sacrifice. That's why Moses, uh, uh, you know, he he put a, a serpent on a stick and raised it up, and, and as long as that was there, then the judgment of God did not come against them. And, and, and that's given meaning in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, that Jesus is that serpent on a stick. He wasn't a serpent, but he was sin upon the cross, and, and he took our sin upon himself. He became sin for us, even though he knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I am righteous, not because of my works, but because of his works on my behalf. You are righteous if you put your trust in Jesus. Not in your own works, but in his work. And then jump up a couple of verses before, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations say compels. I, I love this, the English standard, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. This is cause and effect. How does the love of Christ control us when we come to a conclusion? What is that conclusion? That one has died for all. The one is Jesus and he's died for all. He died for me. In other words, what keeps the love of God controlling my life, compelling me, moving me? When I try to live in myself, when I try to live in my own strength, when I try to love you when I don't feel it. It's like forgiveness. Did you know forgiveness precedes feeling for forgiveness? I decide to forgive you even if I don't feel like forgiving you, even though I think you're an absolute rat and that I don't. You don't deserve my forgiveness. But God says, I have to forgive you the way he forgave me, so what do I do? Even before I feel like forgiving you, I forgive you because God has said forgive you. And there's something in me that has an an ability, the divine ability to release you. Just like God released me, I can release you. I have concluded this. If I want to be controlled by the love of Christ, I have to come to this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. 
The death of Jesus kills me. The first thing that receiving Jesus does, it kills you to who you were. Therefore, one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, why did Jesus die for us? Well, there's several reasons. He died to save us from our sins, no doubt. He died for us so that we can live for him eternally, no doubt. There's other reasons. But this verse gives us a very powerful, those are powerful too, powerful reason that he died. He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. The more we live for ourselves, that means we're selfish. The more selfish I am, the more miserable I am. Selfishness is the greatest cause of misery. It's all around us every day. And the world tells us, put yourself number one. Make yourself number one. There's, there's a, I think it's a, I don't know, it's a L'Oreal or some kind of commercial that says, you deserve it. You deserve it. And all stuff like that, that, that is so carnal, that is so wicked. Because selfishness is the reason people kill. Selfishness is the reason people rob and deceive. The more we live for ourselves, the more miserable we are. The more unchrist-like we are when we're selfish. Jesus did not live for himself, and I can't live for myself. He died for me so that I would not have to live for me. In other words, dying for me, it killed me, and it cut off my bent to sin. There's four different Greek words for sin. All of them are diabolical, but I think the most diabolical one is lawlessness or iniquity. The word iniquity means lawlessness. In other words, there's, some, there's a bent in me to rebel. There was something in Adam that he wanted to rebel. God said, don't do it, so Adam wanted to. There's three sure indicators. These are, these are things of Christ being formed in us. Three sure indicators of the Christ life in us. And remember, we're here so that Jesus can live through us. There's three sure indicators of the Christ life in us. Number one, my primary focus is no longer on my rights and privileges, so my responsibilities. As a matter of fact, any nation that is eaten up with rights and privileges more than responsibilities is headed for destruction. I believe in rights, I believe in privileges, but number one is responsibilities. Number two, my me time takes a back seat to God, others, and kingdom purposes. Is it wrong to have me time? No, but he has to take a back seat. Serving people, serving God is not convenient. And number three, although the Father is always there for us, the more Christ-like we are, our primary focus on him is no longer he's there for me, but it's, Lord, I'm here for you and others. What do you want me to do today? Oh, he's always there for us, but more Christ-like I am, Lord, I'm here for you. Lord, I'm not, I'm not occupying space for me anymore. I'm occupying space for you and for others. 
And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And I'll begin to close. Operative word begin. And uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Now, four times in these two verses, who we belong to is addressed. Four times in two short verses. Who do we belong to? The first indication is, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the primary reason I have a body is not so that I can live, but it's so the Holy Spirit can live through me here in the earth. That's why I have a body. That's why I'm here. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people say Jesus died only to take us to heaven. Well, if that's the only reason he died for us, then we ought to be killed the day we're born again. I mean, just, you know, get them born again and send them off to heaven. If that's the only reason we're, we're born again, then why are we here? No, we're here to represent the Christ. We're here so that Jesus can live his life through us. Paul in, in Ephesians 5, he said, Be therefore followers or imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. There's so many other places. So my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason I have a body. Number two, we're not our own. <laughs> I mean, boy, that is so clear. You are not your own. If you can, repeat this after me. Say, I don't belong to me. Say it one more time. I don't belong to me. Say this. My life is not mine. Say it again with gusto. My life is not mine. <laughs> okay, that's the second time. And then thirdly, it says I've been bought by another at a very high price. He purchased me. In other words... God doesn't force us, but when I receive Jesus, it's not just a matter of getting forgiveness. You know, I'm not, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Well, that's a true statement in a sense, but I'm not just forgiven. I'll agree with you, I'm not perfect, but I'm more than just forgiven. I am forgiven, but I've been regenerated. There's a new generator in me. There was a self-generation I, I, was, I was out grabbing I could, all I could, doing all I could that was bad. But now I've been regenerated by a good and a holy God who loves other people and who's interested in touching people through me. Regeneration. And then fourthly, he says, my body and my spirit belong to God. Wow. God, this is your body. You can say, my body. And my spirit belonged to God. <laughs> in other words, there, there's liberation in that. Now, there's a, there's a price to pay to get to that life, but it's a selfish price. It's just getting ourselves out of the way. And then quickly, Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ and... The argument of chapter 2 is you've been raised with Christ. That's why it starts if then. You don't start a letter if then. <laughs> 
if then you've been raised with Christ. The, the whole preceding last part of the second chapter talks about that. Then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Set. Set your mind. Set your mind. I mean, last night before I went to bed, I set an alarm. Uh, or we, we, we set, uh, what's her name? Alexa. We set Alexa. Alexa's on neither side of the bed, so she sets Alexa. I set an alarm. I set it. I don't, I don't just casually decide, okay, whenever you want to go off, just, just go off. No, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. It says set your mind, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Back in uh, early 1972, sometime in 72, six months or so after I was born again, I was just enraptured by, by God. I just was caught up in God, and I loved to listen to, I mean, it was pre-worship songs. I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot of worship songs that, that, of our kind, you know, of Scripture songs. But I loved Doug Oldham. Doug Oldham was the, an amazing singer and there were two or three songs. I had an album by Doug Oldham, and I would walk around the house and just sing praises unto God and sing along with Doug Oldham. And I'd been doing that, and um, and I was thinking one that particular day. I was just thinking, man, it's just going to be wonderful. These were my thoughts. It's going to be wonderful to walk on streets of gold. And then the Lord asked me a question. He said, do you think it's wonderful to walk on streets of asphalt? And I said, well, no. And it was like I was having a thought conversation with God. Those are fun. He generated it. I didn't. He said, no, because in the earth, it's not, you're, you're, you're not enamored with the asphalt because asphalt is of so little value in the earth. He said, when you get up here, you won't even pay attention to the streets of gold because gold is of so little value. You won't be enamored by the jewels in the walls because they're of so little value. I make streets and walls out of gold and pearls and other jewels. You'll be enamored by my presence. You'll be enamored by me. You'll be enamored by who I am. I want you to learn to live in the earth enamored by things that are worthy of being enamored my presence, my life. So when he says set your mind on things above, he's not talking about dreaming of heaven and what your mansion is going to look like. He's not talking about that. As a matter of fact, you can go, I'm not going to turn there, but the, the second chapter gives us those things that we're to set our minds on. First of all, we've been raised with Christ. We seek set our mind above where Christ is with the Father. What's there? Fellowship, relationship, partnership, communion, wisdom. The energy to live life here is there. That's why I set my minds there. I seek those things which are above. The reality of a living God who's come into my life to give me purpose. Not on things of the earth. And chapter 2 enumerates the things of the earth we're not to set our minds on. 
What you eat and what you drink, religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath day, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, and they're based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value whatsoever in restraining sensual indulgence. That's straight from the second chapter. We don't set our minds on those things. They're not beneficial. Why? Why does he say? Because you've died. Did you know you have died? You have died. If you're born again, you have died. I have died. You have died. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Let me show you a picture of that. You have died in your life. This ring is my life. Everybody watch me. This ring is my life. My left hand is Christ. My right hand is Father God. I have died. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Is that secure or what? The Bible says that nobody... Jesus said, nobody can pluck you out of my hand. <laughs> I can walk out if I want to, but nobody can pluck me. I have died, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says one of the most amazing things. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him. When Christ, who is our life. He doesn't say when Christ, who is number one. He doesn't say when Christ, who is key. He says Christ, who is our life. My life is Christ. That's in conjunction, that's in agreement with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. God spoke to Moses, I said, heaven and earth this day against you. Uh, uh, life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that you and your seed may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may cleave, cleave, cling to him, which means cling. What does a body do when it's near death? It's clinging to life. That's the way people are described. He's just clinging to life. His body doesn't want to give it up. Where we're to cling to God. Why does it say? Because he is your life and the length of your days. Deuteronomy 30, 20 describes God as my life and the length of my days. There's no reason to live if God's not in my life. There's no reason to live if God's not in my life. So he's my life. It's the reason I have a body. It's the reason I walk. And I will close with this, Psalm 73, 26. The psalmist said, my flesh and my heart fail but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. He's my portion. A portion is what I get. What do I get out of life? God. That's what I get out of life. God. And then Deuteronomy 32, 9, the Lord's portion is his people. What does God get out of life? He gets his people. So the heart of living with God is relationship. He's my portion, and I'm his portion. 
And to the degree that I allow that to become the reality, there's where fullness and abundance of life is. Peter put it in these words. He said, God did not redeem us by perishable things such as silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. God put something of immeasurable value in the earth to redeem me unto himself. Was I worthy of it? No, I was not. But now he tells me to live a life worthy of the calling he's put on my life. We're to live lives worthy of the calling that he puts on our lives. And in doing that, what happens? Jesus shows up through us. Can I, give, can I take any credit for the behavior that exhibits, exhibits, exhibits the life of Jesus? No, not at all. It's him. It's him. Let's just close our eyes, not to be religious.